Good morning and welcome. Glad that you're here. Um, I want to begin by just uh, talking for a second about introducing this whole notion of our expectations that we have in different things. And, you know, um, in my sort of other world that I do, I've been to a number of conferences that were focused on client satisfaction. And whenever you go to one of these conferences or whenever they have a speaker that's talking about client satisfaction, one of the things they'll always talk about is what are the expectations of your clients? And if you don't, if you can control those and meet those, that that's a big part of being satisfied in all this. And I know this firsthand, like we all know this, how this works, right? I know for me, probably the thing that gets me the most is when my boys and I are talking about going out for dinner somewhere. We're going to, tomorrow night, we're going to go someplace and we set a place. We're going to go out for Tex-Mex tomorrow night. And for two days, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I'm looking forward to Tex-Mex. I'm doing whatever it is. And then the day comes and there's twists and turns and we ended up eating somewhere else last night or whatever it is. And they want to go somewhere else and we go somewhere else. And I'm just like crushed and disappointed and, and, and maybe angry that we've had this because my taste buds were locked in on that other place. Our expectations matter a lot about how we feel about things, right? That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about our expectations. I want to talk about our expectations in the context of this original Palm Sunday um, reading that we had and as we think through what took place on that day. And then I also want to say a few words about maybe how our expectations influence and impact our own spiritual lives as we seek to live out these sacred promises that we've made, what it does there and how all that works, right? And, you know, the beginning place is to think, you know, our expectations, I think, depending on how things go, they can lead to us being very disappointed, but they can also impact even the way we see things. When you expect something to be such and such way, it may influence how you view the whole situation. And I want to kind of go into both of those in a number of different ways today in the sermon. On the second piece on how it affects us, I think when I start to think about how do people view Jesus, I go back to the very start of his public ministry and when he is calling his disciples. And you go back to say to um, John chapter one, verse 46, Jesus is calling all of his disciples. And we have this moment where he's, he's connected with Philip. He's called Philip. And now Philip goes and goes and finds Nathaniel. And he says to Nathaniel, hey, Nathaniel, we have found the one that Moses talked about and the prophets talked about. We've found that one. It's Jesus, who's the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And if you remember how that passage goes, Nathaniel's like, what? Like nothing, what good can come from Nazareth? Like that, that is backwaters. That is not the expectation of how this thing is going to go. He, like if Jesus had walked by and said he was from Nazareth, Nathaniel's not even going to look at him thinking any possibility of the, the Messiah, because that's not the expectation. And then we began to maybe ask the question, okay, well, what was the expectation? What did they think about the Messiah? Or where did, what is this whole notion? And then you start thinking about the Messiah. Well, there was this notion that had developed, this belief that had developed, that there, was this, there would be this person that would come up 
who would be from David's line, who would be anointed. I mean, the word Messiah comes from a Hebrew word that means anointed, that he's going to be anointed, that he's going to, he's going to be this powerful political king who's going to help get rid of all the bondages of whatever nations are around putting their influence on Israel. As the Old Testament professor, uh, Barry Banstra says, this is the way he says it. He says, a Messiah in the tradition of the Hebrew Bible and Judaism was a kingly figure endowed by God with power to rule over a political kingdom. That's what they expected. That's what they were looking for. They were expecting some real tangible power. That's what they're, they're waiting for. So now let's go up to our today and what's happening in Jerusalem. And, and let's set a little bit of context for what's going on with all these different expectations. The Passover is taking place. Like this biggest of the biggest of the holidays and the festivals taking place. The, the temple would have been the center focus of the holiday that's taking place. And there's all kinds of energy and commotion and things happening and lots of um, density taking place. I read one scholar who said, if you really want to get to a place where you can kind of begin to imagine what this feels like, he said, he's like, just picture that you're getting ready to go on a flight to Israel to do a pilgrimage or whatever. And you're all in waiting in the airport for this flight. And there's 250,000 families and every single family has got a live sheep and you're waiting for a week before the first plane arrives. That's the kind of feeling and energy and commotion and strain and things that are taking place in all of this, right? All that's going on. And then Josephus, the great Jewish historian of the time, he says that the population in Jerusalem could swell to 2 million people at the time whenever Passover came. Because if you lived in a certain area around Jerusalem, you were required to come. And those who were dispersed all around, they were trying to make it there at least once in their life to go actually to Jerusalem for Passover. So there's all this energy and things that are taking place. And you think about that's going on and you think, okay, why are the people there? They've got this expectation of a Messiah and they've got this expectation that the Messiah is going to be this powerful military figure, really political, you know, war horse kind of a person. Why, why are they thinking that? Why is that necessary? Why, are, why is that part of what they're thinking? Well, part of it is because they're occupied, right? Ever since General, General Pompey in the year 62 BC had taken the area, had taken Jerusalem, they've been occupied. And the way the Romans worked at that time was they would get a client king who would be their person who would control the area for them. But the people don't like this. There's oppressive taxation. There's this unwanted imperialism. And all of this is going to continue to, to boil. But they're, they're wanting somebody to help them with this. And ultimately, this is going to boil to where in the, in the year 69, they're ultimately going to rebel and then in 70, the Romans are going to come and just crush them and destroy the second temple, take it down to where there's only one wall standing, which is what we have left today, um, and all of that. So that's, that's ultimately going to happen. And in all of this, these client kings, the greatest one they ever had 
was Herod the Great that we hear about in the pages of scripture. And then when he was basically from like the 30s BC down to like 4 AD, and then when he dies, they divide up his territory into threes. He puts his three sons are over that. And the one who's over Jerusalem doesn't last very long, like something like 10 years or something. And then the Roman answer to how they're gonna go forward from that is they appoint a precept. And that's where we get Pontius Pilate. And he's the one who's gonna be on deck as we head into this. But while Herod the Great is still on the throne, he's no fool. He, I mean, he rules for 30 something years. So one of the things, the two things that he does to make his influence known is A, he helps remodel the temple, but likewise, he builds a fort right next to the temple, the fort um, Antonia, right next to it. So that, because he knows that's the center, he wants them to feel the presence of the Roman empire right next to it. And then things transition and pilots on deck, as I said, um, down the road. And that's who's on deck when we get to this original Palm Sunday that we come to. And what historians say on this day, some historians say that there are two different parades entering the city. All these people are coming from all different kinds of places into the city and the people in the city are welcoming them, but there are two significant parades taking place this day. I'm gonna talk about the one with Jesus in a minute. But the first one is there are some who say that there's records in the, in the year 30 that Pontius Pilate is coming in on one of the gates opposite from where Jesus is coming in. And he's coming in with the Roman Calvary and the Roman centurions. And they're making this power statement as they come in because Pontius Pilate is nobody's fool. He's going to be there for this biggest of religious festivals. And he's coming in. You can think about some of these military parades that we see from different countries around the world where they parade out in front of the stand and all these things are happening. Picture that and picture these soldiers coming in on horses, picture the cavalry, picture the centurions coming in with their shiny hammered helmets and their, um, their spears for the ones who carried those or for the ones who carried bows, their bows and their quivers of arrows and all the different things they do with their shiny leather armor, making a power statement as they come into the city during this time. And just think about what that looks like, all those different things. And then on the other side of town, now picture Jesus who's coming in. And the people have heard these rumors about Jesus. They've heard how he's healed. They've heard the way he teaches, the way he claims authority like nobody else. And the swirl of the suggestion that he's the Messiah. And they're out there for his entry. And when he starts to enter, they have this expectation of this military power, this dominant, strong leader that's gonna come into their city. And they're now crying out Hosanna, which is like, come and save, oh, save. I mean, when they're saying, oh, save, they're not talking spiritual salvation or something. They're really talking about come liberate us from the occupying force. And they're doing royal homage and putting down clothes in front of him as he walks. And they're waving their palm branches and putting those down as part of all of that's going on as he enters into the city because of what their expectations are. They think that Jesus, as he enters, is the Messiah the way they think that he is. 
meeting their expectations. But I wonder just for a moment, pause right there for just a moment. I wonder if they had not had such strong expectations about the way this Messiah would be, but were a little bit more open, would they have seen something different? Could they have taken in some different cues? Jesus comes not riding on a war horse. He comes riding on a donkey. A donkey is a symbol of a king of peace, somebody coming with a peace offering. What if they could have seen that from the get-go? This is not what they expected. This is something different. Could they have heard Jesus bringing a different vision of the kingdom? Not one of power and might, the way the world knows, but one that turns everything upside down and makes love first and leads not from a position of dominance that way, but of an invitation to something higher in love. Could they have heard that? I don't know, but they didn't. What we know, we're hitting into Holy Week this week, is that they're gonna go from these palm branches and Hosanna, save us, to where they're gonna be ready to kill him on Friday. And I wonder all the disappointment because of their expectations they had, they didn't get to go to the destination they thought, the restaurant they wanted or whatever else. Jesus didn't work out the way they wanted. He didn't come into town and go immediately to the governor's house and build his troops and go there. He didn't go immediately to the high priest's house. He didn't immediately go challenge the authorities that way. He goes to the temple, to God's house. And there he does challenge those who are changing money and selling the different sacrificial animals and all. He does all that to set things right. But then after that, he basically becomes low profile, hangs out with his disciples, teaching them, goes off for silent prayer in these different places, but he's not building troops. He's not figuring out war strategies or any of that. And they're disappointed. And by Friday, they're ready to kill him. All of this to me helps us get ready for Holy Week. We're gonna walk this way with him this week, all these things in Jerusalem with him this week. And we're gonna go to the cross on Friday and we have to go there before we head to Easter on Sunday. It helps us prepare for that. But I wanna ask one more thing about this story, about us and our spiritual lives. In what way do our own expectations about God impact our spiritual lives? To what extent do we have a vision of how God should be that keeps us from seeing the way he is? That in actual fact is a richer view, a bigger view, a more loving view, more peaceful view. But are we locked in to where we want a God who's gonna be our lapdog? or a God who's gonna do exactly what we want, or a God who's gonna engage us the way we need it to be done only, instead of laying those expectations aside in a way that God can pull us in deeper ways, in richer ways. Is that, does it, is that something where we are? I know I've been there. Or I think about, for those of us who are engaging faith at the start, or helping friends engage in faith at the start, I think this is a huge barrier to people who are exploring faith 
Because oftentimes we come to faith and we want to, we want to come and explore faith. We're looking for a God who's going to meet us on our terms, our way. And if you'll do this, this, and this, and this, and that, I'll believe in you. If you'll do this, this, and this, and this, I'll make those sacred promises and commit and follow you. Meanwhile, God's got something bigger and better, but it all calls us to be willing to surrender and let go of that and ask, what do you want? And to see his beauty in ways we couldn't imagine if we could just let go of all those expectations that we were holding on to. Not many of us and not many people exploring faith are honest enough to admit that. One of my favorite books about faith in the entire world, of course, apart from the Bible, is The Brothers Karamazov, which is a great big book, but it's worth the read. But one of the three brothers in that book, Ivan, is the intellectual who's gone off to Paris and studied and done all this. But um, he has this one part of the book where the philosopher Peter Kreft says that he makes the best argument against Christianity that's ever been made. Talks about suffering and the little child in the outhouse beating her chest in misery and all this kind of stuff. And Ivan tells that story, but then he goes on to say, it's not that I don't believe in God, it's just that I don't accept him. And it's this idea that he, he gets it, that there's a God, but he wants him on different terms. And so he doesn't accept him. And I think that goes on a lot. And part of this whole notion of approaching faith through the whole journey from the beginning to the end is a daily call for us to figure out what it means to surrender and to set aside whatever expectations of what we might want or think the way it should be. And oftentimes I believe it leads to something more beautiful than we could even imagine, but we have to have the strength to let go. I wonder too, in our spiritual lives, what it means to set these expectations aside in our everyday living out of our faith. I'll tell you just a quick story that um, I, li I lived in London for a year as an intern at an and worked at an Anglican church, more than 2000 people in attendance on a Sunday, huge, vibrant church. But one of the fascinating things about this church was they ran three times a year, they ran an evangelism course that had 600 people in it each time. And the people coming into that were completely unchurched and they would convert hard and come into the church and you'd be around these people. And the thing I loved about it is their expectations were different than what I'd grown up with here in the States because they would go and read scripture. And when it said such and such happened, their expectation was, why isn't that happening now? Let's, let's do that. Let's try that. And right from the beginning, it was, it was a real impact to me to say, how many expectations have I picked up that are negative or limiting on God? And what does the adventure of faith look like if we suddenly stop holding all those expectations we have up in a way that limits God's ability to work in our lives? How much powerful can it be? We go back to this Palm Sunday and we think about our own lives. We are crying out in different ways. Come, save, come into our lives, do this. But do we set all these limits based on our expectations? Come and nourish me and strengthen me, but don't do that. Don't change me. Don't make me weird that way. Or don't do this or that. Do we, are we doing that? This week, Jesus comes to us in humility it's been said, Bede said, Jesus comes 
in a manger when he's born. He enters Jerusalem for his final chapter on a donkey. He comes with humility. And even though we may cry out in our selfishness about what we want, he doesn't give up on us and he's not deterred. He walks with us again and again saying, I love you. I'm with you. I'm walking with you. And I've got something bigger for you. I've got something deeper for you. Come this way and walk with me. Learn my rhythms of grace and my love. My prayer this week as we enter into Holy Week is that this discussion about expectations will help us think about how Jesus is going to go from this palms on the ground, clothes on the ground, triumphant welcome as he comes in to how the same group of people are going to say, kill him on Friday. But also that we would spend this time reflecting on what ways have we put up barriers because we have expectations and really limitations about how God can work in our life. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us so much and that you never give up on us. With humility, you enter in our lives, you come to us and you invite us to go on a journey of faith that is covered in grace and love. Lord, help us in our task of surrendering sometimes our expectations that hold us up from seeing your true beauty. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.